We've been kind of doing messages this month on uh, basically a servant's heart. And uh, as we look at this, obviously Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of being a servant. And uh, next week we'll probably look more specifically at his, his example and his testimony uh, for us to follow. But today we're going to be looking at another example from the Bible of, of servants, and that is from the life of John the Baptist. Um, a lot can be said about John the Baptist. We're going to be looking at part of his life today, and I think it'll be a blessing. So in John chapter 3, we'll read a few verses together. If you're able to, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 3, we're going to begin reading in verse 22. Verse 22, we begin reading there. The Bible says, After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon, nearest to Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John had not yet cast into prison. For there arose a question between some of the John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, and to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's the testimony of John the Baptist. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this morning as we come together now look into your word and see the example of service from one of your choice servants, John the Baptist. And Lord, we pray that we would have that same heart, Lord, that he, Christ, must increase, but we must decrease. So Father, just work in our hearts today. May your Holy Spirit guide us into all truth as you've promised. And Father, help us to live for you, pleasing always. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There's many heroes in the Bible. Um, I think each of every one of us, probably from time to time, I would say probably for me, outside of Jesus Christ, probably Moses is probably one of my favorite uh, people in, in the Bible as far as a Bible character. But I think not too far down the line would be this person, John the Baptist, as well. He carried a very unique ministry and unique mission. And as we kind of look at this, I kind of want to start off with a question as we think about the ministry or service that God called John the Baptist to. God has also called each and every one of us to a ministry to serve Him. We've asked this question a few times before. How many of you are in ministry for the Lord? Every hand should go up. We are all in service to the Lord in some way, shape, or form. No one, God's will for your life is not just to sit on the pew of Victory Baptist Church. He has called you to serve. He has called you and to be a servant of Him. And that can be in a variety of different aspects, the way that God has blessed each and every one with. But nonetheless, the question is this, how should we look at the ministry or the service that God has given us? How should we look at that ministry? How should we look at that service? No matter what role you play in the part of the harvest fields, how should we look at the ministry that God has given us? And while we should be committed to the minister to service, we've got to be careful not to be tempted to compete or compare in the ministry. John the Baptist said here, he must, Christ must increase, or Christ must grow greater, I must decrease, or I must become less, is the idea. This statement here in verse 30, this is the theme, the message for today, he must increase. 
This should be the motto of every Christian. This should be the motto of every Christian. He, Christ, must increase. I must decrease. Uh, we were talking, I think it was on, uh, for maybe a week ago or so, maybe I think it was a Sunday evening, uh, we were talking about different churches who need pastors and things like that. And I remember even about uh, a little over two years ago now, the Lord called us up here. But a, kind of a, a humbling thought that occurred to me, this has happened actually a little bit before we actually came up here. It's kind of the realization that every pastor is an interim pastor. When you think about it, every pastor is an interim pastor. We're not here forever. God has planted us here for such a time as this. He has called us to simply be faithful in what He has called us to do and to simply exalt Jesus Christ and point others to Him. That's what, this is what the ministry is about. And so some people think, man, pastor's going to be here forever and ever. You know, I'm not guaranteed that. We're not guaranteed. Pastor Moppin, God led you here for nearly 40 years. He's, he's like Moses, you know. <laughs> but there comes a time. Each, each and every pastors are, basically every pastor is an interim pastor. We're there to help just simply pave the road until the Lord is coming. Keep working. Be faithful. Keep pressing on. And that was really the ministry of John the Baptist as well. John the Baptist was really a fading light, pointing to people to Jesus, the everlasting light. And so that's a kind of a, a testimony that we should have. And so this should be the motto of every Christian, simply this. He must increase, I must decrease. And that's the message. But we start in this passage here in kind of the background of what's taking place, and we go to a, a specific area. Uh, and so we're going to see two ministries that are emerging here at the beginning of John's gospel is this. Again, it says in verse 22, after these things, and in the chronology here, this is after Jesus had spoken with Nicodemus that one night uh, where he came to him by night. But after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them, or remained with them, and baptized. So Jesus is, again, earlier on, he performs his first miracle, chapter 2, and that's the wedding at, at Cana. Uh, a little bit later in that, uh, that passage, Jesus cleanses the temple, and now he's meeting with Nicodemus. And one thing that's interesting in John's Gospel, there's a lot of interesting conversations that take place personally. And one thing that kind of s- skips us, and I'll be honest with you, I did probably several times reading this, but it says that Jesus' and disciples, they went to the land of Judea, so they were in the Galilee area. They're coming back, and there he tarried with them, or remained with them and baptized. The idea is this, that Jesus, early on in his ministry, gathers these 12, we believe probably was the 12, or most of the 12 by that time. Jesus remained with them. Back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus called the 12 that they would, first of all, be with him. When Jesus calls one of us to be his disciple, he calls us to, first of all, to not do something for him, but simply be with him. I believe that Jesus paused a little bit in his ministry here just to spend a little extra moments with his disciples. Life-touching life, life-giving life uh, for this. And so this is very important. One other thing that's interesting, part of Jesus' ministry was here that he, he baptized. Later on, it says in uh, John 4, this is leading up to the Samaritan woman at the well, but it says in John 4, verse 2, that though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, but probably from John 3, perhaps Jesus did baptize. Maybe he even baptized his own disciples. We don't know 100% of that, but nonetheless, that, I guess, was part of his ministry, at least at the very beginning. But obviously, we know the most famous baptizer in the Bible 
was John, John the Baptist, okay? Now, his baptism is different than the baptism we do. That was a baptism of repentance. The baptism we do today is simply a remembrance, is a reflection, a testimony of what God has done in our lives. Uh, the death, burial, and resurrection, that's what baptism illustrates that we do today. But in doing this, we see here in John chapter 3 here that Jesus was there. And then we see Jesus' ministry, and then we, he's compared to another ministry in verse 23. In John, or John the Baptist, baptizing in Anon, which is near to Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. So the location here, John was also baptized. We famously know John from baptizing where? Little Sunday school time here. Where did John, where do we know John baptizing the most? He is where? The Jordan River, okay? And of course we know that John, this is where he baptizes Jesus, John chapter 1. Uh, Jesus begins his public ministry uh, by being baptized by John the Baptist, kind of verifying John's ministry as a voice crying in the wilderness uh, in, that, in that respect. But understanding this here, that John in this passage was not baptizing at the Jordan. He's baptizing in Enon, which is near to Salim. This is a different area in the Jordan Valley, just south of Beit Shan. Uh, going from the Sea of Galilee, you come down the Jordan River Valley, you come to Beit Shan, and a few miles south of that, you come to Salim. Salim is kind of a, a Greek version of, of shalom, of peace. Enon is actually a Greek word meaning springs. So there were many springs of water that were there near to Salim. So it's an actual location. I challenge you to come tonight uh, to tonight's evening service uh, my plan is, at least right now, is to show a video, kind of a little bit of journey in finding out where this location is. In fact, it's not until recent recent years that this location was kind of unknown, but I think it'll be kind of interesting to find that out. That'll be tonight, 6 o'clock, evening service. Mark your calendars, right? Okay. But anyways, nonetheless, Jesus had his ministry near Judea, and then we have John in the Jordan Valley here. He's also doing his baptizing as well. Now, in the two ministries here, what was the ministry of John the Baptist? The ministry of John the Baptist was pretty straightforward. Uh, if you actually look at his life, he was very kind of like a first century Elijah. Even the type of clothing that they wore, Elijah and John the Baptist looked very similar in that, that regard. Their ministries were similar in that way too. But nonetheless, the ministry of John the Baptist was to present Jesus, the Messiah, as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John had a unique privilege, and this is something that really stands out. John the Baptist had a very unique privilege among the prophets, and he was the one who didn't just foretell about the coming Messiah, he was the one to publicly recognize the Messiah. Think about that. Of all the prophets that were there, here's John the Baptist, everyone going back to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, Hosea, and others that, hey, there's a Messiah coming. Now, 700 years later, give or take, you know, here's John the Baptist, well, here is the Messiah. What a privilege to be called as God's spokesman, as the messenger of the Lord. Jesus said himself in Matthew 11, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding that he that is in the, least, in the least of the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So what a privilege it was for John the Baptist to be the one to finally say, Here he is. Here is the Messiah. Wouldn't you have loved, we've kind of mentioned this, if you want to be a fly on the wall of a Bible story, you go back in time to be there on the banks of the Jordan River when all of a sudden 
John sees Jesus coming afar off, says, here he is, behold the Lamb of God. I don't know about you, that would have been just life-changing to be there at that moment. You can read in Scripture just to be there at that moment. Wow, what an amazing thing. But what was interesting about John the Baptist? Leonard Ravenhill, who wrote uh, Why Revival Terries and other books as well on revival, John the Baptist, he said of John the Baptist, John the Baptist never performed a miracle. He never raised the dead. But God used him to raise a dead nation. That is so true. When you think about the ministry of John the Baptist, wow. And yeah, people heard him. Uh, Roman soldiers, uh, the religious, everyday uh, uh, Jewish people that heard him. And obviously we know even Herod Antipas heard him so much that he says, I like you, but my wife doesn't like you. I'm going to have to throw you in prison. We know what happened. He lost his head over that. Okay, that was John the Baptist. Okay, what an amazing story. I love that quote by Ravenhill. But obviously something happened early on in Jesus' ministry and now John's ministry here. In verse 25, we come to this part here where we see not this two ministries, but now we see a little bit of problem with comparisons that's going on between the ministries. It says here, there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came to John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, talking about Jesus, to whom thou bearest witness, talking about behold the Lamb of God, behold the same baptizes and all men come to him. Okay, so kind of interesting situation that's going on here. First of all, the question was brought in verse 25 about about purifying. Now, there's a question, okay, who exactly was this who came to John about that? Uh, some believe, actually, it could have been Nicodemus because earlier on in the chapter we read about Jesus coming, or Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night, and we see there's some idea, possibly could happen, but nonetheless it was a religious Jew or Jews that were there, and they had a question about purifying, and purifying here is in regards to the baptism. Believe it or not, that baptism is actually, it's not a, just, it's not a Christian thing. It didn't start with John the Baptist. The baptism in the, in the practice of dipping into what was called a mikvah, still is today, in Jewish society, that's been going on since the time of Moses, uh, when priests had to cleanse and sanctify themselves doing service in the tabernacle, for example, or in the temple, they had to dip themselves and cleanse themselves in a way of purifying. If you would have seen them, it looked very much like what baptism looks like today. And so that in Jewish, Orthodox Jewish people still practice this even today. So it's not, it didn't begin with John the Baptist is what I'm trying to say. So there was a question about that. He said, this is going a little different than what we are seeing. What's Jesus doing? And the, and the issue was this. This, went, this comparison went from a doctrinal question. Why is Jesus and you doing something a little different? Or it appeared to be that way. But the question really became not just a doctrinal thing. It became a personal question. Because he says, well, this is the question we have about purifying. But, but this is really what it is. Jesus is doing this, but you're doing this. And all people used to come to you, John. But now, guess what? These crowds are kind of getting smaller. People are starting to go more to Jesus. What's up with that? That's what's going on here in this passage, okay? So there's a little bit of a comparison that's going on here. So here's the thing about comparison. Comparison, there was a, a statement by Teddy Roosevelt that comparison is what? The thief of joy. I don't know if you've ever, ever heard that before. Uh, comparison is the thief of joy. I don't believe that's entirely accurate. I think it can lead to that, though. Obviously, there's two things about comparison. Uh, there is comparing wisely. We compare things every day. I hope you did, but I know I did. When I got up in the mirror, I compared myself to what I saw in the mirror. Okay? And I made some adjustments... <laughs> 
thank God. You should be thankful, okay? I made some adjustments based on that comparison. There are some comparisons that help us in life, obviously. Uh, when you do your finances, things like that, you try to compare maybe what your bank account says, basically what maybe you have down. You compare those things and try to make things reconcile, try to make things work. And that's a healthy comparison. I think another comparison that we have is we should, the Bible says the Bible's like a mirror. When we read the Bible, it should reflect what's going on in our lives, what's going on in our heart, and how we should address those things. And that's uh, really what we say, self-refining. But I think if we are not careful, comparison can lead to self-pity. When we look at our lives and we compare ourselves to someone else or even as some other ministry per per se, we can become self-pitied. And we said, man, I, I can never be like that person, okay? I wish I could be like that or have what they have or have that type of minister or do what they do. Um, but anyways, that is kind of an idea that we have here as well. But using comparison wisely, do not become self-pitied when you compare. Rather, become self-refining. Be- the goal of comparison, I believe, uh, biblically, is that we become Christ-like, that we become more and more like Christ. I think there's also in ministry, there's in comparison, there's a, it, beca- it can become a competition as well, and a competition for relevancy as well. Uh, this is not unique just to this passage. Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, Paul is talking about the divisions that were going on in the Corinthian church, and some people were kind of getting into these groups like, well, I am baptized of Paul. Well, I was baptized of Apollos, and I was baptized of Cephas. I was baptized of Christ. They were getting in their own little groups and kind of comparing uh, one another for relevancy. Who is the greatest? Who is the biggest one? And so this is a, a, something we should be very careful ourselves of is the competition for relevancy. The thing is this, we, we obviously, what's the goal of that? We compete to be seen is the idea. We compete or we compare ourselves to be seen. In a way, that's self-focus, that's self-pity. But as we see, our goal is this, and we're going to see what John did. How did he react when there was comparisons? Man, Jesus is getting the bigger crowds now, John. What's going up? Are, we, are you losing your touch? Are you getting a little sloppy there on the job, John? What's going on? Maybe the water's not warm enough. Maybe he had that, you know, ice-cold baptistry. I don't know, okay? Jesus had the warm one. I don't know. I don't know. But what was going on in the ministry? And, you know, it's easy in the flesh to get defensive of that, maybe to start putting other people down, to start comparison. Why? To make yourself look bigger. And so, but John stops everything right there, and he says in verse 27, okay? He looks at this. He said, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except be given him from heaven. So this is a proper perspective of ministry. That's what we come here to. John's conviction and perspective was that all ministry and all blessings come from God. So there can be no comparison. I'm not going to compare myself with Jesus. That's Jesus' ministry. And obviously he knew his own role. He was simply there to be a forerunner of Christ. Forerunner of telling the Messiah. As he does this here, his conviction perspective is this, that... I can't receive anything until it be given. In other words, the ministry that I have, John is saying, the ministry that I have was simply given to me from heaven. This is what God has called me to do, to be faithful in this part of the harvest field. Again, John was a fading light to point people to the true light. By the way, John chapter 1 deals exactly with that at the very beginning of that chapter. John, there, arose a man, there came a man whose name was John. He was not that light, but... He was sent to bear witness of the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. 
So this is the point of this passage here, okay? So very interesting here. Obviously, we see here that this position that he filled was only given to him by divine appointment, and John knew that. John knew his role and knew his place. Again, he did not think anything bigger of himself. Man, I got the best camel hair and camel belt. You know, I'm eating this high-class locusts and wild honey. I mean, you can't get much better than that, right? He had multitudes coming to him, a very fruitful ministry. I mean, he, if you want to talk about popular preachers of the time, people would come from far to hear John the Baptist speak. I mean, that could go to his head if you let it to. But John always checked himself knew, knowing what the Lord had called him to do. You see here, this is the important thing. John came to inform men, not to attract men to himself. That's the point. John knew that. He came to inform men, not to attract men to himself. He goes on to say in verse 28, Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, but I am sent before him. This kind of goes back to Isaiah chapter 40. He was a voice crying in the wilderness saying, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John knew his role in that. He knew it from even Malachi. He was going to be that messenger that God was sent before the coming of the Messiah. So with that in mind, John's reply here showed his allegiance to Christ as well as his recognition as to his relationship with Christ. In other words, John knew who he was and he knew who Jesus was. And he was thankful for, for that role. He was simply too, very, very faithful in that regard. John understood how to keep his proper place. He did not think himself too highly thinking that he was the Christ. People said that. Hey, this has to be Jesus. This has to be the Messiah. Right here, this is John the Baptist. He's doing some great things. The crowds were gathering. He did not think too high of himself, but he also didn't think too low of himself. He did not think of himself as, man, Jesus is here now. Now I don't have any place to, I don't have anyone to preach to. <laughs> he did not think himself that way. He did not think himself too low. And he basically surrendered himself, submitted himself unto what God had wanted him to do. He was there for a time, for a season. Not sure exactly how long that John the Baptist had his public ministry, but we know it wasn't very long after that that he suffered martyrdom. He was arrested, as we said, by Herod Antipas. He was uh, placed in Machiris, which was a, a fortress in, uh, in modern-day Jordan today. Uh, and there, of course, he uh, lost his life because of simply being faithful to what the Lord has called him to do. He was there as, a, again, a fading light pointing people to the true light. It's interesting as we think about this as well. Look with me. He kind of describes it a little bit more about his role in verse 29. He said, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy is therefore fulfilled. So John here is giving an illustration about kind of his role of what he his relationship to Jesus Christ. He's talking about the bridegroom. That's he's referring to Jesus. Okay? And he said the fr friend of the bridegroom, that's basically him. He is the one, the friend of the bridegroom, who at the wedding is the one who basically brings the two together, who announces the two. Uh, we've talked a little bit here and there about the Jewish wedding customs, but uh, when it came, finally came time after the, the proposal had been taken, the bridegroom goes to his father's house, builds a honeymoon cottage adjacent to his father's house, builds a little mansion, if you will. When the father says, it's ready, go and get your bride, he will come in the middle of the night, he will come, the bridegroom will come halfway between his house and the bride's house, and he will stop halfway. This is what happened back in the time of Jesus. Okay? 
But on that time, when, when the bridegroom would come to receive his bride, it would be the best man. Behold, the bridegroom comes. Go out to meet him. That basically was the role of John the Baptist. Here's the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world to redeem a people unto himself, to redeem a bride unto himself. That's what we have here going on. And so the, the idea is this. The, the friend of the bride, the best man, is not greater than the groom. Okay? I don't know if you've ever, ever been to a wedding where the, uh, the best man or one of the uh, groomsmen tried to upstage the, the bride and, and the groom. Uh, hopefully it didn't happen, but let me give you a little story. This is kind of a funny one. This is our personal wedding. I think some of you have told this story before. But my wife and I, we were married uh, 21 years ago next month. In a couple weeks is our anniversary. And um, it was, uh, uh, what happened was this. I was the, uh, some months before that, I was the best man in a, a friend of mine uh, that we went to college together, his wedding. He was the best man in my wedding. Well, make, make a long story short, they had a honeymoon uh, conception, put it that way. Okay, so eight months later, they're with us at our wedding, and they were we were married in Tennessee near Bristol, near Bristol Motor Speedway. Okay, not at it, but close by. Okay, big interesting backstory on that one. Nonetheless, uh, so the day came for a wedding. We did our rehearsal and everything else like that, and then the morning of our wedding, I got a call at six forty-five in the morning from my friend Peter, and he says, "Aaron, so guess what? Joy's water broke." She's going to have the baby right now. And so they rushed to the hospital. They didn't know where they were. They're in Johnson City, Tennessee. Had no idea where they were. Kind of got in front of them and took them there. Time, from the time her water broke to the time she delivered was under two hours. Okay? First baby. Okay? That was the morning of our wedding. Try to upstage the bride and groom. <laughs> that's, what ha- that's what happened. So, yeah, that baby was born just before 8 o'clock that, that Saturday morning, the morning of our wedding, uh, March 9th. And uh, anyway, so I told Peter, my best man, and said, okay, things were going okay at that point. I said, you know what, in a little bit, we're going to have to get ready for the wedding. Sure enough, he came, and he did it by, I don't, anyways, it was a day we'll never forget, put it that way. But talk about upstaging the bride and groom, okay? Now, that was not Peter's intent. And by the way, their son's name is Peter Jr., so I will never forget his birthday, okay? <laughs> See, it goes both ways. They can't forget our anniversary either, you know, so it goes both ways, all right? But here's the thing, is this, that John understood his role as simply, I'm the best man. I'm here to simply point and announce who the bridegroom is, who Jesus is. That was his role. So here's the point. The friend of the bridegroom, the best man, does not seek honor for himself, but simply for the one he serves. That was the heart of John the Baptist. Okay? So very important. As the friend of the bridegroom, John rejoiced when the one he served was recognized as the Messiah. John did not hold any resentment now that his ministry was fading. He didn't do that. He rejoiced in that. I think it was interesting when you look at the life of John the Baptist, even before John was born, when he was in the womb of Elizabeth, what did he do? When Mary came in pregnant with Jesus, what did John the Baptist do in the womb? He leapt for joy in the womb. He rejoiced. He rejoiced in Jesus, in the presence of Jesus, even before he was born. I think that's amazing. That's the testimony of a servant, is that they rejoice in one greater than them. That's, that's amazing. What a joy it is then to be a servant of the Lord. To be a true servant of the Lord should bring us joy, knowing that we're doing it for someone greater than us. Think of this, John the Baptist was Jesus' greatest cheerleader. In a sense, that's what we should be as well today. 
It's not about us. We're rooting on the team. We're rooting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're pointing others to him. So with that, now John, what was his ministry like now? Jesus' ministry was growing. John's ministry was shrinking. His disciples were, remember, even James and John, they used to be disciples of John the Baptist. Now they're with Jesus. He's losing it already. So, but what is John's perspective on this? John was taking a lesser role in public ministry. It says again in verse 30, this is our main text we're looking at. He must increase, I must decrease. Jesus must grow greater, I must be less, is the idea. So the Greek idea behind these words is this, that he must continue, it's actually uh, a, a, a part of it being increasing. He must continue increasing. I must continue decreasing. In other words, this is a daily reminder. It's not just one sermon. Okay, yeah, Jesus is greater, I'm less. No, this has to be a continual reminder and practice in our lives that Jesus in your life must be increasing. You should be decreasing. When people are around you at the workplace... They should say, man, this, is, this person is following Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus in their lives, not about them making a name for themselves. You're not competing. You're not comparing. You're there to point people to Jesus Christ. It's interesting here that these words, he must increase, I must decrease, these were the last words, this passage here was the last recorded words of John the Baptist until we find him in prison by Herod Antipas. What fitting words these are to close his ministry and to give his life for the Lord he serve. Think about that. How do you want to close your ministry? Whatever time the Lord gives you on. That that testimony, that motto should be that Jesus should increase, I must decrease. I like what Albert Barnes said about this. John was humble and willing to be esteemed as nothing if he could honor Jesus Christ. It shows us also that it is sufficient honor for a man that he may be permitted to point sinners to Jesus Christ. No work is so honorable and joyful as the ministry or the service of the gospel. None are so highly honored as those who are permitted to stand near the Son of God lead perishing men to his cross. That was John the Baptist. What a testimony that should leave for us as well. Folks, every one of you are in ministry. If you're here as a child of God today, you are in ministry. You are a servant to the Lord. And your goal is to simply say, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Go to Jesus. Tell others, go to Jesus. Trust in him. Like I said, John the Baptist was a fading light, pointing people to Jesus, the eternal light. John the Baptist, he could be summed up as this in James 4, 6. God resists the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. He said in John 13, the servant is not greater than his Lord. John the Baptist lived that out. I like what F.B. Meyer said. F.B. Meyer had a couple of little books that he wrote on... Uh, uh, different Bible characters, and he one, wrote one on John the Baptist. And one area that he wrote, I love this quote, he says, the, uh, talk about how do you decrease yourself? How do you make less of yourself? He says this, the only hope of a de- decreasing self is an increasing Christ. The only hope of a decreasing self is an increasing Christ. How do you decrease yourself? Is by making Jesus look bigger. He always is bigger, but your life shows it. It's all about Jesus Christ. Very good. John the Baptist did not regret that men were being attracted to Jesus. Rather, it was a fulfillment of the work and hope. In other words, John knew that he had fulfilled what God had asked him to do in that. He must increase, I must decrease. This should be the motto of every Christian. I want to kind of focus on one more thing here today, is that when you look at verse 30 here, 
the word is he must increase, I must decrease. The word must here is actually very central to this passage. And actually the whole chapter of John 3. First of all, in, in this, it's significant. The word must is significant. Look with me earlier on, John 3, verse 7. Jesus is here talking to Nicodemus. And he says, Marvel not that I send unto ye, ye must be born again. That's the must of a sinner. You must be born again. How do you get to the kingdom of heaven? Except you be born again. You must be born again. It has to happen. But then there's the must of the Savior. In order to make that accomplished, for us to come to be born again, and to our lives to be changed, we must have the must of the Savior. Look with me in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In other words, for us to be born again, it all goes back to what Jesus did for us on the cross, how he shed his blood for us on the cross, how he died for our sins according to the scriptures. And with that, we have that forgiveness and that hope, that restoration that only God can give us through his son, Jesus Christ. There's also the must of the sovereign. The must of the sovereign, verse 30 again, he must increase. That's the sovereign Lord that we have. Jesus must increase. Jesus, as the hymn writer said, shall reign where'er the sun so Jesus must increase, and here's the must of a servant. How does this all stun back? We must be born again. Jesus must die for us. He must increase, but then I must decrease. This is the must of a servant. We must decrease. And for us to, for Jesus Christ to be seen in our lives, we must decrease. If, if people can't see Jesus Christ in your life, that's because they're seeing too much of you. You know what? I'm looking at myself in the mirror when I say that. That's humbling. Folks, we need to get right with God. Think biblically on that. If people can't see Jesus in you, that means they're seeing too much of you, not Christ. This, this, is, uh, this is stepping on my toes. This is stepping on all of us. But what a reminder. Looking from the life of John the Baptist, the must is significant. Why is that? We see the superiority of Jesus. He is above all. Verse 31, we're not going to read those verses per se, but Jesus is the one who comes from above. I'm from the earth. Jesus is above all. And our responsibility is this. Who, who, how do we respond to Jesus Christ? At the very end of this chapter, he that believeth on the Son have everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abide in him. Jesus ministered to several people. People like Nicodemus, for example. People like his disciples. Some will accept him, some will reject him. Jesus spent time with his disciples even at the beginning as we saw here. Perhaps one of those was in that group was Judas Iscariot. That offer was given to him as well. Will you accept me? In the end, Judas rejected him and rejected the message. The thing is this, all these things are written. John says at the end of his gospel, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God and that believing ye might have life through his name. This is all written that we would see that they would believe on John the Baptist, that they would believe on Pastor Aaron. Don't believe on me, all right? Believe on who I follow, Jesus Christ. There's a song, I'm not even sure if it's in our hymnal, but it came to my mind as I was preparing this message. Not I but Christ, be honored, loved, exalted. Not I but Christ, be seen, be known, be heard. Not I but Christ in every look and action. Not I, but Christ in every thought and word. Oh, to be saved from myself, dear Lord. Oh, to be lost in Thee. Oh, that it may be no more I, 
but Christ that lives in me. I pray that can be our testimony today. I like what Pentecost said in his commentary. John the Baptist had come to direct others to the one whom he had served so that they, like him, could become his servants as well. That's the goal of discipleship. By making disciples, we basically say we're making fellow servants, pointing people to Jesus Christ. John the Baptist shows us that while we may be very popular and outwardly successful, we can still be humble, even as John the Baptist was. John the Baptist had fame and crowds that modern celebrity pastors could only dream of, yet he was an example of genuine humility. We are simply here at Victory Baptist Church in this ministry. That's how I like to think of it. We're simply ordinary people serving an extraordinary God. That's what it's all about. We're ordinary people serving an extraordinary God. It'd be kind of like this. When you get ready in a few months from now, you'll get to mow your grass, guys or ladies. Could you imagine as you're walking around the grass, figure out what area to start with, and all of a sudden you hear a conversation and when you bend down to the ground, and you hear the conversation going between, between two blades of grass. One says, I'm the tallest blade of grass. And then the one next to it says, no, I'm the tallest blade of grass. You know what? In just a few minutes, they're going to be cut down anyway, right? And they're going to be even. And that's the thing as well. When we start comparing when competing, we're like those blades of grass arguing with other who's the greatest, who's the tallest, who's the strongest blade of grass. But you know what it amounts to? None of that matters. Pointing Jesus Christ is what matters. So here's the challenge for us today. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. This should be the motto of every Christian. Is this true of your life? Let others see Jesus Christ in us. And I challenge you today, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior... Jesus came to die for your sins. He came and he shed his blood on that cruel cross. He was buried and he rose again the third day, triumphant over sin and over death. And he calls upon all the world, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're here today and you do not have that assurance, you have questions about that, we're glad to show you from the Bible, God's word, how you can be wondrously saved and become a servant of the Lord. It doesn't mean it's easy to be a servant, but you know what? And giving him honor and glory, it gives us joy to press on to be faithful. He must increase, I must decrease.